this is this my god who starts a show like that this is the leadership hour i'm steve adubato that is my colleague and friend and associate mary gamba it has been 19 years of sheer joy pleasure stop looking at me like that it is your sheer energy level that just keeps me going day in and day out steve is that what we're calling it? It's yes. energy, it's passion, it's passion. Enthusiasm. enthusiasm. It's being abrasive and a whole range of other things. Uh, this is the Leadership Hour. We're talking about every aspect. When we started this show, we are saying, oh my God, how many shows could we do on leadership? And the answer is, there is no limit to how you talk about leadership. There are things happening in the news every day. There's innovation every day. There are leaders screwing up, doing great things. And that's why Mary and I, we started this show with our colleagues at AM 970, where this uh, program is heard and also on our podcast. Uh, it's been so exciting. I can't even believe it's getting close to a year. Mary, where do folks check us out? Yeah, absolutely. There's a bunch of places. On Facebook, they could follow us, uh, Steve Adubato, PhD. That's A-D-U-B-A-T-O on Twitter, Steve Adubato. And they can also subscribe to the podcast if you're listening on the radio now and want to hear some of our back editions, Apple, iTunes, and Google Play. And lastly, we have a lot of great Free stuff on stand-deliver.com. Mean is our articles web. that I've articles, written over the years on tips, important tools, leadership issues, branding. Topics, yes, absolutely. How to become a better communicator, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, by the way, a little bit later on, we'll thank our uh, our sponsors, but to uh, New Jersey Resources and a bunch of others, we cannot thank you enough. Our clients, the folks who allow us to do what we do every day, and coach, teach people about leadership, and it is our honor and pleasure. By the way, Mary, why don't you introduce? your colleague and friend who you work with every day at the Caucus Educational Corporation. We have great leaders at our not-for-profit production do. company connected to public broadcasting. And Laura's in the house, so why don't you give her a formal introduction? Yeah, absolutely. So Laura Van Bloom, in title, is our VP of Marketing and Sponsor Relations for our nonprofit television production company, Caucus Educational Corporation. But in real life, she started, I guess, has it been five years now, maybe? Yes. And I cannot believe the just level of leadership, communication, commitment, and innovation. So that is Laura Van Bloom. She's pretty much the everything at Caucus Educational Corporation. So, Laura, thank wow. you for joining us. Thanks Welcome, for that intro. Laura. Yes, soon to be COO. I, I think she is COO. COO. We might want to, yeah, add that to her title. We're but. not big on titles. We're big on leadership. Is that a fair assessment, Laura Van Bloom? Uh, yes, I agree. I don't think we're big on leadership. Uh, so <laughs> Oh, great. Oh, and by the way, that's not being edited out, Laura. That is not going to be We're not big on leadership. I just write about it, yeah, talk yeah. about it, think about it, pontificate about it. And you know what? We're not about leadership. Yeah. Oh, and slip right there. You know, what's interesting is you had another colleague of ours in the leadership hour, Nicole Swinnerton, and one of the things that she talked about was her title and how important that was to her. <laughs> and I remember listening to that and thinking, oh my gosh, I just, I don't really care about that anymore. I mean, I, I'm at a different point in my career, but titles are not what motivates me you know and titles are not what you know is impressing my friends or impressing my colleagues like so i thought that was really interesting that that there was a motivator for her and it's not for me and by the way uh, nicole is one of our many younger leaders again we don't use the word millennials a whole bunch but they are young leaders and they are learning and growing and innovating and making mistakes and getting feedback and trying to get better some are more responsive to it than others but laura back to you mary called you a leader you know i know you're a leader. A, do you see yourself as a leader? And B, what kind of leader? I do. I do see myself as a leader. I think you know we're a small company, so there's not a lot of layers. But I do feel like I'm a go-to person and people ask me questions and they want my help in finding solutions to problems. And I think I'm the type of leader that tries to be 
collaborative. I don't rule by an iron fist. You know, I don't have a, a negative energy. I try to be very positive. I try to help people find their way, find solutions, make suggestions. How would you do this? So I think I'm the type of leader who tries to guide people to a certain direction. But if they're not getting there, I'll tell them what to do. But I think my overall mantra is, you know, guiding and getting people to a place that I think they should be. You've worked, before you came to the Caucus Educational Corporation, you had a very impressive career working in the branding, marketing, mm -hmm. advertising world. Have you interacted in that environment with a fair number of quote-unquote leaders, meaning people in leadership positions? Oh, sure. Lots of different ones, yeah. Overall. How responsive are those leaders to feedback about certain marketing, advertising, branding ideas that they are convinced they are right and they know more, you say? Oh, well, yeah. I worked in advertising for a really long time. So just the advertising world has a lot of very strong, large, big egos, especially folks who are on the creative side who are creating ads and taglines and graphics. So the, there would be a big struggle there sometimes when you need to say, no, that's not working or the client doesn't like that. And especially when you're talking to the creative director of the agency who's like, nope, this is it. Go sell it. Um, I'm sorry. I, you talked about being so collaborative. What happened? <laughs> you know, I, ha I have a very vivid memory of a very, I was a very junior level account person and we were presenting an advertising campaign to a client. And I was, you know, I was just like barely getting into the meetings at this point. And everyone in the agency, I think we were presenting three campaigns wanted to recommend campaign A. So we were going into the meeting and we were going to recommend campaign B. And I remember turning to one of the creative guys. I said, but <laughs> we all agree campaign A. Why are we doing campaign B? And he said, because that's what the creative director wants. And he wouldn't listen to anybody's insight or ideas. It was just like, no, his way or the highway. And I remember very vividly thinking, that's the worst way to operate. Like, why would you do Sorry that? Sorry By itself, just that example. Is that in your mind an example of a poor leadership trait? Well, I think it was for me at the time because I didn't understand why he was going with that recommendation. Maybe he was the smartest guy in the room and had a purpose for recommending that campaign B, but that wasn't communicated to us. It was just, nope, I like that one. So because he shared no insight, he shared no information, and he promoted this idea of my way or the highway, it kind of shut us all down. You know, why do you want to work for that guy? Well, that is a bad leadership trait. And, and by the way, we have a small team of nine or ten. And there have been times that I've said as the quote unquote CEO of a, of a very entrepreneurial small company, this is the way we are going. Mm -hmm. I want to believe, maybe I'm delusional about this. I want to believe, by the way, Steve Adubato with Mary Gamba and our good friend and colleague, Laura Van Bloom, who the three of us work together every day trying to lead this organization and be innovative, creative and stay in the game. There are times when, when I'll say this is the way we're going to do it, but I hope I explain why. I'm sure there are times I don't, but there are times I feel like, hey, my company, my way, I've heard enough. This is the way we're going. Bad leadership? No, and then, Mary, you jump in. Well, I was going to say, so there are some situations where you just say, no, we're going to do it this way. Because I believe I know best. You believe you know best, but that is after we have given our recommendations, and you may not agree with them or, or decide that that's the right way to go. But I do feel like we always have the opportunity to express our opinion or our recommendations. You may not agree with them all the time, and that's fine. That's different than not listening to anything we have to say or not hearing our opinions and just saying, do it this way. So because I think that's I said very different. So. Which is <laughs> parenting for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, why? Well, because I said so. You can't do that with professionals. You could. 
You lose. But there's them. a lot of roadkill, isn't there? Yeah. You, say that again. You lose. You lose. Either they leave, right. or they stay, which is worse. Right. It, you know, if you're not a leader who's engaging and guiding and encouraging and motivating your people, and they're feeling beaten down and not listened to and not respected, they're not going to stick around. Like, who cares about your opinion? I know best. Right. I'm the quote CEO. Yeah, if you don't see my value, why would I stay? Let me jump in. Uh, why are you making a face, uh, well, Mary? It's interesting. You can't see this on audio, but Mary Gamba just made. I have a lot of faces. Un- it's horrible. That's an I- un-Mary Gamba-like face. It was like, huh? <laughs> well, go ahead. I was well. The reason why I was making the faces, I was trying to go back in my mind and remember who it was that was either in studio or that we were talking to in a previous leadership hour, and it'll come to me. I'm always on a three-minute delay. It's a joke in the office that if you ask me a question, I won't know now, but in three minutes, I'll know the answer. Yeah, it's, it's just a great a, communication trait. It is. It is, <laughs> and uh, that's why I'm glad that we do have Brian Brodeur here because I'm like, Brian, what was that name? And you'll see, I do have a point to this story. So pretty much it does come down, I believe, to a lot of men and women differences in leadership. I think women, and again, just, you know, in terms of overall, are more likely to hear other points of view Hmm. and kind of let them soak in a little bit more than, you know, men as leaders, which is okay. But as far as really taking it and then considering it. That's what I'm saying. The difference between men and women communicating. We've talked about this serious? all the time. I am. Do you ever hear their words, Margaret Thatcher? Yeah, but that's and read okay. read about her? That's all right. She's an outlier. But you, you think, seriously, are you going to go down well, the road, Mary Gamba, that most women are more collaborative? They want to hear your ideas more before uh, the... Well, what I, do you well, th- well, no. And I think that men will either, just the people from my experience, people that I've worked with and for... Go ahead. I think that it does come down to a style of leadership, for sure. That's significantly gender-based? Yes, I do. Whoa. I think that women are more collaborative. Women are more... Or when it comes to what we're talking about right here, not overall, I'm not saying in every situation. Ideas, which ideas? ideas. The creative director wasn't a man or a woman? That was a man. All right, don't go along with that. Just because <laughs> friends. Okay, but creative stuff, it different is. ideas, that kind of thing. Yeah, and, and I'm not just you know saying this because you're in the room. You are very good at hearing everyone's opinions and, and really listening to ideas and suggestions. But I'll cut so, people off if I think they don't. Seriously, I appreciate that. But I have right. cut people off, and I'm like, God, they have yeah. no idea what they're talking about. I know this. I've lived it. Mm-hmm. Why are we doing this? And there's a degree of impatience sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. Once you say, with all due respect, yeah. um, usually whatever comes after <laughs> that, that is... Just, just stop yeah, talking. So you might as well not even say that because whatever, it doesn't disqualify whatever you're about to say as being whatever. Now, it's not to say that some men aren't more collaborative, but it is, it's a trait that does need to be learned by all leaders, men and women. But I'm also going to say this. Laura's been with us for five years and has made... Laura Van Bloom in the studio with uh, Mary Gamba, Steve Adubato, Brian Bordeaux, and his great production team making it all happen here at East Main Media. Laura, you did not know me 10 years ago, and I'm not going to make this about me, but I am no way, in my mind, no way is my leadership style and approach, and I was a man then last time I checked, no way 5, 10, definitely 15 years ago is it remotely the way it is today. You, in my opinion, would not be working with us today if you had joined us then. Translation, I'm not convinced it's so much gender-based. It's either you evolve as a leader or you fail as a leader, you say. Well, I think there's two questions there. One, yes, I think you need to evolve as a leader. I think you need to be the right leader for the right organization with the right team. So if you have a team that needs 
guidance and motivation and positive feedback. You need to be that kind of leader or those people will leave. But there are organizations where that's not as needed. So What? It, Doesn't everyone need that? Well, there are some people who need it more than others. Okay, go ahead. Right? But then going to Mary's point about the gender issue, I, I think there's a little bit of a an issue where women in particular, when they're in very senior leadership positions, there's this middle ground you got to find. So I think collaboration helps soften the hard edge, but you still make decisions. You still make the calls. You still are in charge. How do you think it's any different from me or any other leader? Listen, there are countless leaders who happen to be men who lead with an iron fist. Yes. You're the art director or whoever that person was, right? I was like, this is the way it's going to be. There weren't people who walked around afterwards and I wasn't there, but I'm convinced they didn't say, oh my God, what a strong leader. They were like, what a jerk. We right. didn't even listen to anyone's point of view. Right. I'm of the belief that at this point in 2019, that the standards for great leadership as it relates to being collaborative, being open-minded, being receptive to feedback, that it ain't all that much different for men in leadership positions mm -hmm. or women in leadership positions. I feel like more and more, mm -hmm. the whole gender-based analysis of leadership is not dead, but it's becoming increasingly irrelevant. We were just talking to somebody this week who told us a story that when they go You're talking on about in our stand and deliver business where we're coaching sure, clients sure. every day. Sure, sure. We don't have to name names of who it was, but it was a woman leader. And when she takes a client and meets for lunch or dinner, she told us a story. And I, I know you know maybe don't remember the story, but where she has to get there before the other person oh my God, this to is let right. the waiter know that she is the one that is going to get the check. It doesn't automatically this go happened. to the man. This happened like 48 hours ago. I remembered. Like, exactly. And that was, to me, again, a trigger of there is just an assumption that if you're the man and you're sitting at a lunch that the check goes to you, that you're the one that's going to, she even used the example, the wine list, choosing the wine. So she strategically gets to the restaurant early so she can let the maitre d' and the waiter know. And that that's the stuff that I'm talking about. If you walk into a boardroom and you don't really know the players in that room, your eyes are first going to go around and look at the men at the table, try to figure out who they are first, and then maybe go and look at the women, unless you already know the people and the key players in that meeting. It's not a bad thing. It's just how it is right now. And I don't think, okay. sure, we've evolved, yes, and we're working on that. But when it comes to women leaders, and just to really take it full circle, we were talking about listening to other points of view. Women are definitely more collaborative when it comes to leadership. I'm going to tweak this a little bit. Since we're going to go down this gender road, Steve Adubato with Mary Gamba and our good friend colleague who knows more about not just social media and marketing and branding, just about being a, an innovative leader, Laura Van Bloom, who is a top player at the Caucus Educational Corporation with a background that's impressive before she got there. I'm curious about this. I've often said this to both of you. We have a team that happens to be me and a large group of women of different ages, but all women. I have this crazy idea because I'm not there a lot. I'm on the road and raising money and doing business development and blah, 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 blah. That there are times in my mind that you're not as direct and have the difficult conversations with each other that some might call confrontational. I call it artful confrontation where uncomfortable things are said to each other around performance that make the other person not happy. In my mind, part of it is because you're all women and you're less likely to want to have difficult conversations about performance that will make the other person uncomfortable. 
I'm not there, so I don't know for mm -hmm. sure. Laura, am I totally off base? You are 100% off base. You can, we've had this conversation multiple Edit times. Edit this out, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think what happens is, you know, we are a tight-knit group, and we work very well together. By the way, this is for any other organization that's small sure. entrepreneur. Brian, any how many big? team members do you have here? So Seven. So it's like we're at 7, 10, 15. We're all in the same market. Right. Go ahead. So when you're in a small organization like that, and I don't think it's a, a female issue at all. It's a, We're a small organization. We work very closely together. You have to rely on each other. There's no filters of layers of lots of people. There's no bureaucracy. There's no bureaucracy. <laughs> right. Of course, you want to get along. I mean, of course, you want to get along. But that being said, I have to say, Mary and I both have had some difficult conversations, and they've been very, very direct. Yes. I think Do you think people have walked away calling you names? Well, maybe not because out. I know it's maybe, true for maybe me. Maybe not out loud. But. Okay, no, 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 not to you. I'm saying the kind of conversation where you are giving feedback that has to be given yeah. about performance and where someone is not getting it done, doing it in a respectful but direct way to the point where, as Colin Powell said in the chapter in my book, great leaders sometimes piss people off. I'm asking you, do you think that you've had those conversations as well as Mary, but speak for yourself now, where they were like, who the heck does she think she is? And way worse than that. Yes, I think there have been situations where necessary. they do not agree with what I have said, nor what I have instructed to have happen. But the situation has to move forward and you move on. It doesn't happen a lot because we are very fortunate that we have a really Does it happen when it team? needs to happen is all I care yes. about. Yeah. And by and the way, I'm not measuring like a leader it? by how many negative or, or confrontational right. conversations right. they have. But do they have them mm -hmm. strategically when they need to have them? And in my mind... I'm not convinced. I think gender sometimes, in my mind, mm -hmm. prevents certain women from having direct conversations about performance that make people uncomfortable, in part because they're women. I mean, you know Mary and I very, very well. Do you think we lack that skill? I mean, you don't think Mary and I could have that direct conversation? I think you could. I think you do. I believe the culture, mm -hmm. with all women together, does influence the leadership traits of the people at the top, which happens to be the two of you, when they're all women. Right. And I, mean, I, I do want to jump in here. It's got something to do with it. With a very specific example. So it goes back, and you and I have talked about this for years, and to your credit, you have adjusted your delivery. You believe that when you say giving hard-to-hear constructive criticism, that there needs to I be— I call it feedback feedback, that there needs to be some sort of intensity or volume or I really mean what I'm saying. And it's also in parenting. I mean, my husband, Bill, parents completely. I don't need yelling and screaming to discipline my children. I don't reason with them. You know, this isn't a terrorist negotiation, but I'm very calm when I speak with my children. And I explain to them the what ifs and if you made a better decision, this would have been the outcome. And it's the same in our organization. Perfect example. We had a situation once where one of our team members wasn't meeting deadlines. And then when she, because it's all women, when she did finally give the whatever it was, say it's bullets for a show or a column. This or is whatever. our television production company. Sure, sure. So whatever the it is, you could fill in the blank. But we had a sit down and we were very specific with this is the issue. This is how it's impacting the rest of the organization. I wasn't there. I didn't hear this. No, no. But we tell you after the fact. But you perceive it as we sat down and said, well, maybe if you did this It would be better, nice if you did this. In my We'd mind, like I think more. what you're saying is it would be great if you could do this. No. And in my mind, I'm thinking, are you kidding me? We don't have time to waste. And right. in All a right. small, lean organization, if we spent that much time worrying about hurting someone's feelings, then we all need to grow up. That's what it boils down to. So I should delivery, have more faith is the point here. Yeah. And because you don't hear about it doesn't mean that it's not happening on a, on a weekly, if not daily basis in certain situations. Right. And I, I also don't think it's. 
I think you think it's a gender issue, but to me, it's more of a dynamic in the office issue, whether if it's a small group. So if, if two of the employees have- Talk to all the organizations that are relatively small well, right now. Yeah, so like if there them. are men and women working in a small organization, having confrontation is still challenging. You know, whether because it's talking too intimate? To a, Right, because well, you stay around around. those people right, all the time. You, yeah, because you're literally working with them side by side, 100 mm-hmm. percent all the time. So obviously, if you have a confrontation that's uncomfortable, it creates a little because you walk past discomfort. that office as opposed to a right. major corporation. You but don't I see that. But an hour later, you got to brush that's it aside Laura, and work on. Laura talking and Mary next. Go ahead. I do have to say something because I've had the advantage of working in this, two promise. large organizations: Rutgers University yes. and RWJ Barnabas Health. Yes. Even though they are huge, you cannot get almost more huge in that's New right. Jersey. You're still, quote unquote, working in a small organization in terms of your department because the team team that you're working with. So, sure, this same example can be used. Like when I worked at Rutgers, it was in the career services department. There were maybe 30 of us total. That's still pretty small. When I was at the hospital, we worked in the patient representative department. Same thing. There were maybe 18 of us. So, sure, you need to interact with a lot of other people. But that core group that really is key to what you're doing is still about the same size. The same examples fit, even though it's a large organization. By the way, if you check out our website, stand-deliver.com, you'll see a series of articles that I've written. It doesn't make me write about it, but I've thought a lot about what I like to call, quote unquote, difficult conversations and the responsibility of leaders, great leaders, good leaders, Mm -hmm. leaders that are trying to get better, of having difficult conversations By the way, Laura, can you stay with us the entire time? You ever see talk show hosts do that? Or do you have somewhere to go? Uh, No, I'd love to stay. Oh, great. (laughs) Check with your people. Um, I had a client yesterday at a major New York firm. That's all I'll call it. And he had someone on his team who was talented, young, upside potential. And I said, "Uh, what's the number one thing that's stopping her from getting to the next level? And he said, she has a language issue. I said, what do you mean? He says she wasn't born in this country, and her English is not what it needs to be, and there are times that clients don't understand her. I said, how long has she been working with her? He said, six years. I said, she's not going to become a partner like this? Nope, because people don't understand her. And by the way, her emails reflect the fact that there's some challenges when it comes to English, which could be a problem. I said, so when you sat down and spoke with her and talked to her about this issue and what she needed to do about it, because there are, in fact, people who are experts English as a second language and help people. He goes, oh, no, I never talked to her about it. So I said, hold on. (laughs) I'm coaching you. You're supposed to coach her. He goes, oh, that's too uncomfortable. I don't want her to feel bad. I said, do you want to help her? Yes. If you don't have that conversation with her, and by the way, Mary knows with a lot of our clients, we've done this before when we knew language was an issue. For years, yeah. If you don't have that conversation and facilitate getting that person help, that kind of feedback, Laura Van Bloom, is required, but that's the uncomfortable conversation. Six years, he's never had it, so that's not gender-related. And by the way, I'm not sure if, if this person worked for him was a guy would be any different. He just ain't having it. that the norm? Unfortunately, I bet it is. People don't like to have the tough conversations. People would prefer to just, <laughs> I just won't talk about that issue and just... Because she's good at a lot of other stuff. Right. But she's not getting to the next level. Right. So what is a great leader's responsibility in that case, in your view? A great leader really has to have the ability to have effective, uncomfortable conversations. You have to be able to be very honest and very transparent. And hopefully through your conversation, you will communicate that you are in the long term helping this person. You know, if you don't know how to write a business letter, teach them how to write a business letter. But they're offended. And if they're offended, then they're a lost cause because you're trying to help them. 
Interesting. I, it, it's it's hard. I think that's a very hard one. But unfortunately, this guy waited so long. It's sort mm-hmm. of like, well, it's really late now. Why are you telling me now? Right. I, I mean, <laughs> and that's another thing, too. Effective leaders, they need to see issues or problems right away and address them because it's just like anything. Like the longer mm. it festers, the longer it goes on, the worse it gets. So if someone has, you know, they write bad emails, fix it right away. Or if they don't communicate well on the phone, fix it right away. And to Laura's point, and by the way, if you check on our website, stand-deliver.com, a lot of articles on giving feedback yeah. quickly in the moment, mm-hmm. sometimes I do it too quickly, specifically, precisely, as opposed to you really need to step up your game. Yeah, give examples. What game are you talking about? What do you mean? By the way, Mary, let folks know where they can find us because I'm going to keep Laura for Absolutely. The well, the this will be a good segue because we're going to talk right now about where they can find us on social media, Facebook, Steve Adubato, PhD, that's A-D-U-B-A-T-O, on Twitter, Steve Adubato, and they can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, iTunes, and Google Play for free, which is great. Laura, you came in with some sort of notes. I have no idea what your notes say. <laughs> um, question. The connection between exceptional, great leadership, and the whole social media world game, whatever you want to call it. What's the connection? Well, I think great leaders need to keep one main idea concept in mind, and that is this. If you are a leader, and that could be a CEO of a major organization. Or the head of a department. Or you're a little league coach, or you're the manager of a local restaurant. You are that leader 24-7, you're never not the CEO. You're never not the little league coach. So your actions, your words will always reflect on you as a person, as a leader, but also could reflect on your organization, your brand. You are always an ambassador for your brand. So take a CEO. If you're a CEO and you're out at a restaurant, you are still the CEO of that brand. And Come if, on, you just party and having a good time. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, if you've stepped into that role, you are always out there. So, so social media is a public platform. Social media is not ever private. Don't ever think that you have any privacy issues or that you're only sharing things with friends. Social media is a public platform that you have to assume that your coworkers, your bosses, your board directors, your competitors, your neighbors can see. So if I'm a CEO or I'm a leader of an organization or I'm a coach, the high school coach or the college coach, whatever, and I tweet, those referees were all effed up. Mm-hmm. He just says, that's my opinion. Right. That's a problem for him. That is a problem for him because... He just says, it's my opinion, Laura. Right. It's what he says. Right. What's the problem? Well, anyone can express any opinion they have, right? You There's are allowed but to... But you are the brand ambassador. So if you are a coach of XYZ team and you want to promote sportsmanship and good hard work and winning isn't everything, if that's your mantra, then you have to reflect that on your social media or your personal life or your public life, whatever that is. You know, if you're a CEO of an organization and you, I don't know, do a racist tweet or something like that. Or something that could be perceived as such. Right. Or you send a picture of yourself, former Congressman Anthony. Oh, no, let's move on. Okay, but you, but, but, but Mary, take that. For I this. Know. He's not the issue. That's the far extreme. He's not yeah. the issue. And that's the extreme. Right. But there are people who post things that are somewhere on the continuum. Right. So let's say you're the CEO of an organization and you post something that's either considered offensive or racist or sexually inappropriate, anything like that, right? There's a good chance maybe that CEO gets fired. But what happens is it taints that CEO's person himself or herself, but it also taints the brand. Of? That organization. It's like, well, they have a, a the brand, race. They, the company didn't say it. He or she said it. But I'm a, I'm a vendor working with that company. You have a racist running your company? You know what? I don't want to work with you guys anymore. You could lose distributors, vendors, suppliers. I mean, it, it could have this massive ripple effect that you didn't even think about because you thought you were tweeting some funny picture. So what's the advice you give to leaders 
listening right now, many of you, when it comes to, quote unquote, the use of, the effective use, the strategic use of social media without getting yourself in trouble? So I think there's two types of social media, right? Let's talk about you're a CEO and you have a personal Facebook or Twitter page. Think about the cocktail party rule. It used to be if you went to a cocktail party and you didn't know people, you didn't talk about three things, sex, religion, and politics. Those were the taboo subjects that you didn't want to talk about because when you're in a room full of strangers, you don't know how people are going to react. You don't know if it's going to be a hot button issue. You have to think of social media as a public platform where you're talking to strangers. You don't know who's out there listening. You don't know who's out there going to retweet something you've done. The retweeting thing is big. Or spin it into something. You know, you could do something that's potentially just a mild joke that someone could spin into something crazy. So as a rule, it would be helpful to avoid those issues. Really? So when I was tweeting on my personal Facebook page and saying some things about certain public political figures that other people reacted to, mm -hmm. was I running the risk of some of the people who are our key stakeholders and supporters of who we are and what we do saying, I don't want to hear that from Steve, and that's not why we support his organization. I think, yes, you run that risk anytime that you talk about things that are these hot-button issues. Mm -hmm. And you use no, the word just, personal just my page. opinion. It doesn't work there, that way, right? There's no personal. No. Mary's right. There's no more, if you're a leader or you're, you're reflective of the brand that's out there, Yes. there is no more personal versus professional. Our personal and professional lives have blurred, and social media has blurred those there's lines, no more too. There is no more delineation. There's no more wall between the two. So you, you if it's you a lot are of that responsibility, if you're that basketball coach or that CEO, you're always that basketball coach or that CEO. Always. Unfortunately, yes. Mary, you agree? Oh, oh absolutely. Mary Gambo, Laura Van Bloom, Steve Adubato. This is the Leadership Hour. Two minutes left. We're on the two minute drill. Go. Oh my goodness. Oh, the pressure. The pressure to get it all out. No, I'm just kidding. But yes, we've talked about that a lot. The difference between your personal page. You'll be like, why can't I put that up on my personal page? Because you have a lot of also clients and underwriters, say, of our nonprofit television production company who also friend you on your personal page. So if you have someone that doesn't believe in what you're saying, they're going to form an opinion. And of course, it's public perception. It doesn't necessarily mean they're not going to come back and, you know, be your friend. But you know, it's you risky. Could, it's risky. And you always use the expression, and I find myself using it all the time. It's an unforced error. It is something that you have done that if you totally just, you put yourself in You didn't in have it. to do it. You didn't have to do it. And we always talk about return on investment. And you'll often, you know, go to Laura and I with, hey, you know, just to kind of feel, all right, does this make sense? Should I do it? Shouldn't I do it? And To run it past you. By the way, some of our clients and friends have posted things in social media because they, quote, right. were expressing their opinion. And in the moment. And, but but if, it caused problems. Yeah. And you're almost better off waiting a little while before, say, if it's a heated item or if it's something, hey, I feel this right now. 24 hours later, you may not feel the same way. Or better yet, if you do feel that way, go to somebody that you trust and say, what do you think? How would this make you feel if you read this? Do you think the president takes the time to <laughs> yeah, run things man. past other people? Or does he do it? Because someone might say one of the reasons President Trump is so successful is because he leads by instinct. Right. Well, God, there's a difference. Well, but his tweets reflect his brand. That's the brand. That's persona he is opting so, to put out there. Right. He and controls whether, that message. Right. Whether that works for him or not, or mm -hmm. people like it or not. But that's his brand. That's his brand. I'm going to say what I think. He's when never I pretended. Think it, yeah, he's never pretended. It's not like you all of a sudden then behind the scenes is doing something that gets out. What you see is what you get. So good, bad, or like, different. Right. It's so fascinating. Hey, Laura, was this what you thought the leadership hour would be for you? It was even better. Really? Yes. Oh. You and Mary have a, a wonderful banter and you dig into topics and I think it's great. It's very genuine and honest and just put out there. Did you use any of your notes? 
No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> She's not the first one. We often have people come in. I mean, I just do this because I doodle and write down certain words so I don't forget them. But yeah, people think they need the notes, but they really don't. By the way, thank you to Laura Van Bloom, who is one of our great partners and friends and helps us lead our company every day, is in fact a bona fide leader. Also want to thank Mary Gamba, who's been with me and our, our underwriters, uh, New Jersey Resources, Valley Bank, Cohen Resnick, MD Advantage, St. Joseph's Health, Hackensack Meridian Health, RWJ Barnabas Health, Gibbons, uh, and also Operating Engineers, Local 825, all the folks who Stand and Deliver works with every day to help them be the best leaders and communicators there you can be. Anything you want to say on the way out? No, it's just it's been fun. It's been great to see how the topics evolve. And I think this is the first time that we've really dug deep into social media. So I was glad to get some tips and tools from the best. Thank you, Laura. Thank you. Check you out next time on the Leadership Hour. This is Steve Adubato. This is Mary Gamba. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with State of Affairs with Steve Adubato, where we look at the most pressing issues facing the state of New Jersey. This edition of the Steve Adubato Leadership Hour has been made possible by New Jersey Resources. This is Tracy Thompson, New Jersey's acting insurance fraud prosecutor. The state of New Jersey is making learning about and reporting insurance fraud easier than ever. At njinsurancefraud.org, you'll find tips on identifying insurance fraud and a simple, confidential form for reporting it. Report it, end it. Hi, I'm Dr. Jeffrey LeBenger. At Summit Medical Group, we believe that all citizens need to be informed about the important healthcare issues that affect their lives. That's why we're very proud to support important programming produced by the Caucus Educational Corporation. State of Affairs with Steve Adubato is brought to you from the Agnes Veris NJTV studio at 2 Gateway. Funding has been provided by NJM Insurance Group. Choose New Jersey. Our mission is attracting companies to the Garden State. The Turrell Fund, supporting right from the start NJ. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. The New Jersey Economic Development Authority. Berkeley College. And by Summit Medical Group, a multi-specialty medical practice providing comprehensive care from birth and pediatrics to geriatric care, concentrating in general wellness, cancer treatment, disease management, and behavioral health. Promotional support provided by NJ Biz, all business, all New Jersey, and by NJ Advance Media. Welcome to State of Affairs. I'm Steve Adubato. We're coming to you from the Agnes Varis NJ TV studio right here in Newark, New Jersey. We're going to introduce gentleman who knows Newark, but he's not from Newark. He is uh, Reed Gassiora, who is the mayor of the capital city, Trenton. Good to see you. Good to see you, Steve. For those who don't know Trenton, by the way, you can see the capital dome behind us. Is it, that's the, Trenton's more than that, right? It is, it's seven square miles. It's on the, uh, sits uh, midway between Philadelphia and New York. We have four tra uh, train lines, waterfront property, so it's a great place to come and invest. You also spent 22 years in the state legislature before you became mayor. Representative of the Capital District, yes. That's right. Uh, number one challenge facing Trenton these days happens to be? Well, it's a combination. Our water, uh, public utility is, is a challenge. We're, we're trying to turn that around. We have uh, economic development issues. 
uh, crime and um, also education. What are the biggest opportunities for Trenton? Uh, the fact that you could uh, buy low and, uh, and develop, uh, we have a lot of uh, potential uh, developable lands. Uh, seven entities came in for uh, cannabis ventures. Uh, we have the Roebling factories that have been sitting there for 50 years. So we have a lot of investors that, that want to come in and, um, and, and gamble on uh, Trenton. You know, it's interesting. I, was, I happened to be at a uh, college basketball game. I have uh, uh, full disclosure. I'm a fan of Seton Hall University basketball. Miles Powell. Yeah. Right? From Trenton. Made a big shot in one of the, the games against Villanova, and the announcer said, there he is, Miles Powell from Trenton. Trenton makes the world takes. takes. Explain to folks what that means. And by the way, is that still on the bridge? It's still on the bridge, and now it has LED lighting. So <laughs> it changes colors. Technology, um, innovation. Yeah. Okay. To explain to folks the, the short version, Reader's Digest yeah. version, I'll age myself, when it comes to that whole who makes and who takes. Well, we made the wire for the Brooklyn Bridge and um, the Roebling Wireworks. Uh, we also made Lennox China, Beam China, mm. um, uh, and a whole host of things that we made. Trojan uh, rubbers were made in Trenton, New Jersey. Really? I didn't time. know that. Exactly. And, but all those factories have shut down, and a lot of, that, uh, uh, a lot of those buildings are redevelopable or um, can be uh, mixed use, can be... Uh, uh, a lot of opportunities are available. But, but talk about the role of government. Yeah. You, you've made it clear, and because you know state government better than most, frankly. What is the role in state government in your view, A, in terms of direct state aid, B, in terms of the role of the economic development authority in terms of tax incentives? Well, there's a lot of tax-exempt properties. Are they two different issues, by the way? No, they're all in the same. Go ahead. Um, there are a lot of tax-exempt property. They're either owned by government or God. Uh, the churches don't pay uh, property taxes. The government doesn't pay property taxes. We're also the county seat. If uh, the government... In Mercer County. In Mercer County. If, if the government paid dollar for dollar in property taxes, they would give us $45 million, but yet the state government gave us $9 million last year in transitional aid. So we need a, a bigger investment from the state, uh, excited about the Murphy administration. He is uh, willing to help us out. And Are the dollars there, Mayor, to do that, even if he is willing? We have to uh, work with the legislature, so that's good working with my uh, former colleagues. Uh, but we need them to really recognize the capital city. The Governor Christie was terrible to the capital city, took away the capital city line item, uh, took away a lot of the aid, and uh, so we have to uh, rebuild the, the capital city. You know, innovation, we're doing a series on the future of innovation. And so what I'm curious about is where you actually see, Mayor, the opportunities to be innovative, creative, creating more jobs. The governor, in fact, talks about the innovation economy. Mm -hmm. What do you see as the innovation economy in the capital city? Well, we're excited. We have, um, uh, uh, we have five colleges within 10 miles of the capital Say city. Say that again. We have five colleges within 10 miles and of the they capital include? city. Princeton University, Ryder, TCNJ, Thomas Edison, and Mercer County College. And we've applied it as a consortium for uh, economic development uh, grant award uh, for an innovative challenge center that we'd like to build in the capital city. An innovative challenge center. What that, does that mean? That would work with uh, the uh, uh, entrepreneurial uh, opportunities for young kids in, in the city of Trenton, but also link them to those colleges. They have the know-how, but they don't have the opportunity. But if we could bring those five colleges into the capital city, have them invest, give us some bricks and mortar, mm. um, that would be a win-win for uh, capital uh, city residents. Let me switch gears a little bit. By the way, uh, Trenton Waterworks, is that a project? 
Is it, you're trying to revive it, but what is it exactly so the people, by the way, can go on the website to find out about Trenta, what is it? We supply the water to four municipalities plus the city residents, um, uh, but we have some lead line issues, much like Newark. Uh, we have to do system upgrades. We have to bring in the expertise to, to the to water run supply. Better. Yes, there's been eight years of mismanagement, and when I took over, we had seven, 70 vacancies. Uh, we didn't have any system upgrades. We were facing fines from DEP and BPU, and we're all turning that around right now. Mayor, you are in fact the first openly gay mayor of the capital city. Yeah. Also, a big advocate of curriculum, uh, LGBTQ inclusive curriculum in New Jersey, middle school and high schools. For those who heard about this, but they don't really know what it means, what exactly does that mean? And why is it important? Well, I think it's important, much like uh, uh, black history is important or, or Hispanic history is important. Um, there, are, there are things that touch upon politics or uh, just in general that LGBT community has been on the forefront. If you want to talk about the civil rights movement, you can talk about uh, Harvey Milk, you can talk about Stonewall. Harvey Milk from San Francisco, who led well, the effort, who gave up his life in, in this fight for, for, for equal rights, for civil rights, for those who happen to be uh, gay. Absolutely. And this is the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. And, Stonewall in uh, New York City. Yes. Do people, real, short version, I hate to say that, Stonewall was a place in, I believe, down in the, in, in the lower uh, in West Village. Village. Yeah. What went on there and why was it important? Well, it was, a, it was a, a bar that's still in existence, but at the time it was run by the mob. It was a, a way for uh, uh, gay people to come and, and congregate, but it was raided constantly by police, often had to pay them off. And this was one opportunity that uh, uh, the gays were not going to take the, they stood the harassment. Up. And they, they stood said up. no more. And it was a couple of days of rioting, and it really was the spark of the civil rights movement for uh, the LGBT community. Um, this is the 50th anniversary. I taught uh, LGBT politics at TCNJ, and a lot of my students who were interested in the subject did not know what Stonewall was or never even heard of Harvey or Milk. Harvey Milk. Yeah. Th th these things matter in the context of knowing the history of our country. Yeah. yeah. It's not just the LGBTQ community. That is part of, mm -hmm. right? Someone said, I want to study suffragette, or the suffragette movement. Well, is this different? Well, I think this empowers also LGBT kids that often get bullied and uh, feel that they don't have self-worth. When they hear that there, there were actually gay heroes out there, um, it, it really uh, helps not only with their classmates and their peers, but it also helps them understand uh, where mm. they can go and what potential they have. Before I let you out of here, given the div divisiveness, given the polarization in our nation, more important now than ever before for these discussions? Absolutely, and, uh, and I think that uh, our, be our days are, are greater ahead in the city of Trenton, and it's really important that we all work together, and uh, we're going to have a much better capital city in the years ahead. Mayor Reed Gassiora of uh, the capital city, Trenton, I want to thank you for joining us. Wish you and, and all the residents in Trenton the best. Thanks so much, Steve. Thanks, Mayor. Stay right there. This is State of Affairs. I'm Steve Adubato. We're at NJTV Studios in Newark. We'll be right back. To see more State of Affairs with Steve Adubato programs, visit us online at stateofaffairsnj.org. If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD, And follow us on Twitter at Steve Adubato.
There she is, Diane Delano, who is, in fact, a policy analyst for a terrific organization called Advocates for Children of New Jersey. Good to see you. Hi. Thank you for having me. Uh, we've been working with your not-for-profit, our not-for-profits, working with your not-for-profit on an initiative called Right From The Start NJ. How would you describe it? Well, it's an initiative to really um, bring attention to the needs of infants and toddlers in our state and to really make and strengthen services and policies around infants and toddlers. And your organization's been fighting this fight for a long time. Yes. Um, our organization itself has been around for about 40 years. Um, we just celebrated our 40th anniversary, actually, last, last year. And for a little over a year, we've been um, working on the Right From The Start NJ um, campaign. Yeah, it is a campaign because it's about public awareness. It's also about we are not involved in advocacy, but in fact, we're trying to let people understand some of the issues. And one of the first issues that we need to deal with is um, the Murphy budget. We don't know all the details, no. in particulars. But the governor has dedicated in his proposed budget $15 million for what, Diane? For childcare, and that is huge. Um, normally, we haven't seen um, any dollars dedicated strictly for childcare services, so we're very excited to see that it has made it in the budget this year. Okay, here's the question. You know, there are so many priorities in Trenton, in the state capital, mm -hmm. right? When someone says, well, infants and toddlers, caregivers of infants and toddlers, it's a top priority, and someone else says, well, what are you talking about? I don't have a kid that age, and..." or my kids are older and I don't even have kids, why is this everyone's issue? Well, um, the first three years are the most critical part of development. Um, that's where brain development really happens. And what happens in those first three years could really have a, a huge impact on their academic For success. For example, break that down a little bit. Well, that's where you learn speech. That's where you learn about relationships. Um, it, it's where your brain takes in your whole environment. So we need to really make sure that everything that surrounds our babies, you know, is nurturing, mm. caring, development, developmentally appropriate, sure. um, so that they get off to the right start. So I'm curious about this. We've had this discussion offline, but I want to talk about it here. Dan, access to quality health care. It's a phrase. Excuse me, mm -hmm. access to quality child care. Yes. Why is it so difficult for so many? Right. Well. Quality and childcare, <laughs> two, two different things. High quality childcare, very expensive. Childcare itself is very expensive, but for babies, it's even more expensive. Um, what you have to do for a child um, is very different than a preschooler or older age children. They need a lot more care. They need a lot more one-on-one. Um, -on -one. So the ratios in a childcare center, licensing standards are there has to be one caregiver for every four babies. So that's where the cost is, really, in the personnel um, that you have to have to serve um, infants and toddlers. One second. Someone says, wait a minute. I, I see this whole movement for pre-K. It's universal pre-K people are proposing, moving forward, making progress. That's not the same as zero to three, birth to three. No. No, because this is what happens in the first three years of life. And you need to really make sure that they get off to the right start so that they can transition into pre-K and then transition into kindergarten and so on. And if they so don't, on. talk about some of the challenges they face. Some of the challenges for not having access yes. to high-quality yes. child care. Um, well, since there's so much learning that happens in the first three years, if they're not ready for pre-K um, and not ready um, for kindergarten, you sets them on, on a trajectory which may have an impact on their academic success. We, there's research to back that up. Oh, there is, yes. Lots, and decades what, of research that has shown that high-quality childcare 
right from the start mm. really helps to make a difference. Diane, talk about the pressures on parents who can't find that care for their well, children. 69% of, of women um, with children under the age of three are in the workforce. And the availability of infant toddler care um, is, is scarce in New Jersey. We have um, communities that are deserts, which means there's no infant toddler child care even available for them um, to even access. Um, and we're talking about regulated, licensed child care programs. Right. Um, so yeah. they need to find something that meets their work schedule. Because um, 9 to 5, not everybody works 9 to 5 anymore. So childcare needs to be responsive to the parents' needs. Let's do this. By the way, you'll see the website up, not only our website for Right From the Start of Jay, but also uh, Advocates for Children in New Jersey. New Jersey Paid Family Leave Program. There are some changes being made, and I wish I should have said to have a graphic here, but follow me on this. Mm -hmm. As of right now, new parents or caregivers can receive up to six weeks of benefits equal to two-thirds of their pay, capped at $650 a week. Yes. It is proposed that on July 1st, 2020, eligible workers will be able to receive 80% of their wages up to $860 for 12 weeks. Why does that right. matter so much? I mean, actually, it's 85%. And 85. it doubled from six weeks to 12 weeks. Explain and what that means for people. So for the first three months, you get to be home with your child, bonding with your child, and you can have an income that you can um, actually be able to stay home and not worry about, you know, the income that you will be losing from not being in your workplace. And the other benefit about paid family leave is now companies that have 30 or more employees, you have job protection. So you could leave your job for that, for the 12 weeks, and come back and have that same position. If there are 30 employees or more. Or more, right. That's the new provisions and the new law that was just signed in in February. It's interesting. We've had other leaders in the business community who have some concerns about that. They've had their opportunity to discuss it. They'll continue to be able to do that. But it is, in fact, going to happen on July 1st, 2020. Those provisions will go into place, yes. Um, home visitation. What is, what is home visitation in the minute or so we have left? Why does it matter? Home visitation is um, when a skilled, trained professional comes into the home right around or after the time of birth and provides the family with the resources that they need to help them through those first critical months um, after they people? bring You don't home. mean a doula. Um, it could be a doula, um, it could be a nurse, and it could, or it could be a community um, health worker who comes into the home. Um, what it is is a trained person that connects with that parent and mm. helps connect that parent to the services that they need. You know, as a father, how right. difficult it is those first few months. Um, and all babies are different, and all, all pregnancies and experiences are different. So uh, having somebody in the home could help detect something and help get them the services early on. Before I let you out, sorry for interrupting, where are we with that right now? Is, that, is Senator Teresa Ruiz, uh, based actually here in Newark, New Jersey, mm -hmm. who is uh, the second-ranking Democrat in the Senate, um, she recently introduced a bill for home visitation. Where is that right now? Right now, it's still um, out there. It's a brand-new bill that has just been released. And what that would do is get at least one home visit for every new parent. But it's not? Has it gone through committee yet? No. Just introduced? It's just introduced. So mm -hmm. we're just working on it. But it's something that we would definitely support. Diane, thank you so much uh, to you and your colleagues at Advocates for Children, New Jersey. Forty great years. Thanks so much. Great. Thanks. Let's stay right there. This is State of Affairs. I'm Steve Adubato. We'll be right back. To see more State of Affairs with Steve Adubato programs, visit us online at stateofaffairsnj.org.
If you would like to express an opinion, email us at info at caucusnj.org. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PhD. And follow us on Twitter at Steve Adubato. We are pleased to be joined by Angelo J. Genova, Chairman and Managing Partner of Genova Burns, one of the top law firms in the region. Good to see you. Good to see you, Steve. I also, also want to say that your firm is one of the um, many folks supporting the public affairs programming that we do on State of Affairs. We Angelo, try. you're an expert when it comes to a whole range of issues having to do with campaign laws, campaign finance, but we didn't have you here for that. You are concerned about the two-party system, A, and B, what it means to our nation. Make a case. Well, I'm concerned on a lot of levels. Um, it starts with the fact that when, when you go back in history, you know, the founders didn't contemplate this idea that we would have two parties. And it evolved over time, and it has served us well. In fact, it served us very well uh, through centuries. I, I think what's happened, though, is that the parties as institutions, uh, as institutions for developing candidates, as institutions for raising money, as institutions for establishing policies, have been displaced. And they've been displaced by the media as communicators. They've been displaced by independent expenditures, super PACs as vehicles to raise money. The discipline that came with the development of party platforms are gone, and candidacies are all candidate-centered. They're not party-centered. Is that how a Donald Trump becomes the nominee, 16 candidates in the GOP primary, and then becomes president? Is I, that I, part of the yeah, reason? I think it's, it's more part, complex, I, I know. Yeah, but I think it's part <clears throat> of the reason, because there's a path that becomes available to a Donald Trump or to a candidate like Donald Trump where there's not a dependency on the party. And what typically happens, if you look over the last decade or so, you have individual candidate-centered politics. The person gets the nomination, and then the party folds into that person. So the party gets defined by that person, and Trump is a great example of that. And the question is, is that are people, and if you ask the average Joe, they're voting for a candidate. Not they're the not, party. They're, they're not as identified with the party, I have, I've observed. More and more independence? More and more independence. Well, what does independent really mean? Well, independent means I don't, I ask yourself this question, why is it that 40% of the electorate doesn't want to identify with a party? They don't want to identify with a party, either they don't know it, they feel that they don't want to be holden to an ideology, they want a sense of freedom, whether you want to call it a libertarian sensibility or whatever, but that they're not about the party, they're about the candidate, and they'll choose their candidate based on the issues. Is there something that wrong with that? Sorry for Angela. Is there something, not wrong, I don't want to say it that way, is there something dangerous about that? I kind of think there is because, you know, I, I use a metaphor that might sound silly to people, but it's, you know, kind of like uh, the, the arranged marriage. The arranged marriage of, of, a gener of uh, centuries ago, parents got together and said... Are you talking about our ancestors from uh, southern uh, Italy yes, right we now? Yes, we are. We are. We're talking about that. But the point is, is when we had a party where there were party leaders who vetted candidates, and some would say that we were backroom deals, we got some great candidates. We got John Kennedy. We got Franklin Roosevelt. When the party apparatus is lost, when there isn't this mechanism where people vet themselves, where they evaluate themselves, where they're trained, where there's no organizational support for the development of candidates, then I think it, it is, it's problematic. Now, some would say, well, the open primary, that's, that's the most democratic. Right. You know, my sense is, yeah, that offers democracy, but if you don't have a, 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 if you don't have a counterbalance, if you don't have a political apparatus that develops people, develops candidates, then I think it, it puts at risk, it puts at risk uh, people's willingness to support uh, political parties. Angel, the other thing you mentioned about the media, it's so interesting. I mean, we in public broadcasting try to approach 
these issues from a comprehensive uh, analytical perspective, bring on people who are thoughtful and um, with different points of view. But some of our colleagues, and this is not meant to disparage the folks in commercial cable, if you will, broadcasting, but if you listen on a nightly basis, it doesn't feel and sound like this. It doesn't, I'm not saying we're better. I'm saying the divisiveness that we often hear on cable news on a nightly basis and the demonizing of each other. Does that worry you? Sure it does. I recently watched a documentary on the 1968 uh, election in the United States that showed how the original debates between uh, Gore Vidal and uh, William uh, Buckley. Incredible. Yeah, were, were, were the, uh, some would say, is the seminal event that provoked what we see on cablevision today. I think the incivility. Talk the, about the, mean and nasty. Sure, in the absence of merit-based discourse. It's troubling, and we don't have merit-based discourse in a lot of venues. If you look at the political parties, are they venues for merit-based discourse? Is, are they genuinely places where we bring everybody under the tent, come to solutions, or are they driven by factions within the parties? I mean, the big debate right now is whether the Democratic Party is being driven by one element of the party, no differently than how the Republican Party was driven over the last decade. So if parties are supposed to be the the uh, the big tent, if you will, the the vehicle for mitigating the vetting, the vetting, process. the vetting, right? To come up with platforms. I mean, you ask, yes, the average Democrat if they've ever read the platform of the Democratic Party. Do they really identify with the brand? Do they know what that brand means? You know, at the turn of the last century, I, I tend to like history, but at the turn of the last century, pe the platform mattered. People voted for the platform. They weren't candidate-centered. Is, is, in the time we have left, Angela, is the yeah. platform of the Democratic Party, by the way, in our new series, Think Tank, produced right here out of NJTV Studios, we're going to be talking about um, one of the first shows of the future of the Democratic Party. Do people say, the future of the Democratic Party, is it Ocasio-Cortez, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, you know, in, in New York? Is it uh, Cory Booker? Is it someone in the is it is it Mikey Sherrill? My point is, it's based on not policies so much, but people. Well, that, but there's a fundamental question every political party has to ask. Is, it, is this is about winning in a ballot box? Or is this about ascribing to a set of principles that may not get you elected? Uh, and I think that's true in both parties. What should it be, in your opinion? Well, I think I think a party should have principles. I think people should subscribe to those principles. I think people should be accountable to those principles. But if a party truly wants to operate in the big tent, those principles has to embrace the philosophies of many As people. As opposed to a few seconds left. If you're not with us on this, we're not compromising. Forget it. We'd rather lose than compromise, you say? Well, I think I say to that is that it's more important to find your way into public office to make a difference than it is to subscribe solely to principles that can't get you there. Angelo Genova has been working at this for a long time with a lot of folks. He is the chairman and managing partner of Genova Burns, a law firm based right here in the great city of Newark. Thank you, my friend. Appreciate Thank you. It, Stay right there. This is State of Affairs. I'm Steve Adubato. We'll catch you next time. State of Affairs with Steve Adubato is a production of the Caucus Educational Corporation, celebrating over 30 years of broadcast excellence. State of Affairs with Steve Adubato is brought to you from the Agnes Veris NJTV studio at 2 Gateway. Funding has been provided by NJM Insurance Group. Choose New Jersey, the Turrell Fund, supporting right from the start NJ. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the New Jersey Economic Development Authority, Berkeley College, and by Summit Medical Group. 
NJM Insurance Company has been serving New Jersey policyholders for more than 100 years. But just who are NJM's policyholders? They're the men and women who teach our children, the public sector employees who maintain our infrastructure, the workers who craft our manufactured goods, and New Jersey's next generation of leaders, the people who make our state a great place to call home. NJM, we've got New Jersey covered.